the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Peter. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. In the moments when you feel sorry for yourself, like, you know, I've just left this world and now I don't have any friends, and you'll get friends eventually. You'll hopefully develop good Christian friends, and, but it's going to take some time. Don't allow the loneliness to pull you back into the old life. Embrace it for a season because Jesus knows exactly what you're feeling. He experienced the greatest degree of loneliness than anybody who ever lived. And yet he was faithful and true to the Father. And so can we be. When you trust in Jesus, you become a part of his family. You're a child of God, and he gives his Holy Spirit to always be with you. This means you're never truly alone. You'll still have moments that feel like it, though. That's a hard part of life. In today's message, Pastor Gary will encourage you to stay steadfast in your faith. God is with you, and He can bring good out of the worst circumstances. Even if your suffering leads to death, you stand to gain the incredible gift of being in His presence. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. 1 Peter chapter 4. So uh, for those of you who haven't been with us in our study of 1 Peter, the year is uh, roughly 64 AD. This is the Apostle Peter who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen this letter. And uh, it is written primarily to uh, Christians who are experiencing, at this particular time in history, severe persecution. The years 64 AD to 67 AD are some of the bloodiest years in regards to Christians being martyred. It was all started because Rome burned and Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians, and so uh, historians, some say that Nero used it as uh, a scapegoat for his own uh, arsenal, where he basically set Rome on fire because he wanted to refurbish Rome and in the process just blamed it on the Christians. Anyway, this led to severe persecution. Uh, many Christians would die during these years. Among them, Peter will lose his life for his faith. Paul will lose his life for his faith under the hand of Emperor Nero. And so, Peter is writing here out of this firsthand um, empathy for his fellow brothers and sisters who are going through various trials. I mean, literal trials where their lives are on the line. And he's encouraging them to persevere in the face of suffering. Suffering is a major theme in the book of 1 Peter. It is a word, some form of that word suffer that appears 17 times in just five chapters. In fact, 
The word suffer is found more times in the little epistle of 1 Peter than any other book of the Bible. That's how much he's focusing on the reality of his day. Now, we're somewhat removed from this, obviously. We're not, at least presently, in danger of losing our lives for our faith. But what if? What if one day uh, your life was on the line because of your faith in Jesus Christ? And stop and think about people around the world right now. That is the case for many believers in different parts of the world, where they they have a decision to make. Am I going to stand up for Christ or am I going to die today? And so we've been so, in some ways, so sheltered from that, that we're, we're, you know, we're so far removed from what it means to really have our lives on the line for our faith. We have it really comfortable. And because we have it so comfortable, you know, let's just thank God for that, but let's not get lazy in our comfort. You know, of all people, we, we should be bold about our faith because presently there's, there's no cost. You know, I mean, it's not, what's it going to cost us? What's the most severe thing that could happen? Well, you know, at least right now we're not going to die for our faith. Maybe that day's coming. I don't know. But presently, we should be bold for our faith because we have it so well. We have it so easy. We have it so comfortably. And when we get here to chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he, he's continuing in this theme. He's going to talk a little bit more about suffering. But what he, what he ends up doing here is he begins to exhort us about some of the things that should um, characterize the life of a believer. And, and I'm going to draw out five things from chapter 4 tonight that he talks about things that the life of the believer should include. And the first uh, point that he's going to make here is from the first five verses. So let me read the first five verses of chapter 4, and then we'll, we'll back it up and, and dig out these verses. He says here in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, some of your Bibles say pagans, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So one of the first things that he says here in chapter 4, these are kind of his parting exhortations because he's only got one more chapter after this, so this is drawing near the end of the epistle. He says one of the things that should be included in the life of the believer, obviously, is holy living. And that's what these verses are all about. It's easy when, you know, particularly in this day in the context, when your world is falling apart and your life is on the line for you to just go say to yourself, well, forget this. You know, what's the point in living like this if if I'm going to die for it anyway? And so he's challenging them. He's like, don't give up on holy living. I mean, your lives might be on the line, but don't give up on holy living. All of us should be living in such a way that we honor God with holy living. And he, and he begins here in verse 1. He talks about how Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. You know, he says, consider the fact that Christ was crucified on a cross, kind of suffered a little bit. So he says, in a similar way now, he says, I want you to realize that dying to self, 
Crucifying the flesh involves some measure of suffering. In regards to holy living, we should be recognizing that there's some suffering in our own lives in regards to dying to self. So when he says here in in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's not saying that we never sin anymore. It doesn't mean that we will never sin again. It means that just as Christ suffered for us, in regards to salvation, we should be willing to suffer in our struggle against sin. And so that's the point that he's, that he's making there. And notice the word arm yourselves there in verse 1. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. It's, it's a military term, obviously. It's, it's reminding us this is a battle, the battle of the flesh to die to self. Our flesh wants to dominate. You know, when you get saved, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your spirit gets regenerated, your spirit gets redeemed, but not your flesh. Your flesh is one day going to disintegrate, die, return to dust from which it was made. In the meantime, now, you have a regenerated spirit that is living within a, a, a non-redeemed body of flesh. And your non-redeemed body of flesh still has its carnal appetites, still has its basic desires, its, its lusts, it, its, its sinful uh, appetites. And so the conflict exists between the flesh and the spirit where the spirit wants to do one thing, the flesh wants to do another. And so he's saying here, he said, listen, Christ suffered for you. He died on the cross. We can go through a little bit of suffering in, in the terms of dying to self, crucifying the flesh, and putting to death the lusts of, of men. This is what he says there in verse 2. He says that, that he no longer should live the rest of his time. In other words, speaking about believers, we shouldn't be living out the rest of our lives in the flesh, for the lusts of men. Now, a lot of times we think of the word lust just solely in, the, in terms of sensuality or sexuality, but it, it's a broad term. It means more than that. In fact, in the NIV, it says instead of the lusts of men, it says evil human desires. It's a broad term. It just means, you know, listen, when you get redeemed, you still are going to have these desires, these worldly desires, but you're going to have to make a choice. All of us have to make a choice. Are we going to live for these evil human desires Or are we going to live for the will of God? That's the end of verse 2. That becomes our choice. Are we going to continue to gratify the desires of the flesh? Or are we going to suffer those things, die to self, and instead live for the will of God? And by the way, discerning the will of God is probably the number one thing people ask me to pray with them about. And Romans 12 gives us you know, some advice about discerning the will of God. Let me read out of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It simply says this. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, listen to the rest, that you may prove What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Did you catch that? What Paul writes in Romans 12, very similar to what Peter's writing here in 1 Peter chapter 4. There is a connection between the ability to discern the will of God and walking in holiness. You see, Peter challenges us and he says, don't be living for the lusts of men or the evil desires of this world but rather be living for the will of God. Paul says in Romans 12, here's how you can discern the will of God. It starts by offering your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Holy 
and acceptable to God. And he says that in verse 2 of Romans 12, then you will be able to discern, to test, what is his good, acceptable, and he says pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, if we're not first determining to walk in holiness, why do we think God is obligated to reveal his will to us? You see how this works. It goes hand in hand. So if I want to know the will of God, if I want to discern the will of God, it's incumbent upon me to be walking in the ways of God. How can I lay claim to wanting to know the will of God until I'm first walking in the ways of God? And the ways of God are holy and just and true and right. Now, by the way, let me just say this too as it relates to the will of God because people get a little wigged out because they they think to themselves, I think I've missed the will of God, so now I'm completely off track and my life is a mess and I'm totally lost. Okay, just calm down. It's interesting there in Romans 12, verse 2, where, where Paul says, after he goes through saying, you know, offer your bodies living sacrifices, we need to be living holy lives, acceptable to God. And he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, or acceptable, and perfect will. There is a perfect will of God. But I want us to see, because I believe this is what Paul was trying to teach us, I want us to see the perfect will of God like the bullseye on a target. And... It's ideal to always hit the bullseye, but it's okay to also be in the perimeter of his good and pleasing will. In other words, sure, there is an ideal perfect will of God, but on the outside perimeter of this target is his good will and his pleasing will. In other words, what Paul is saying is, listen, as a believer, if we first do our best to walk in holiness, there might be times that you're not spot on in regards to the bullseye, but you're still within the target and God is sovereign enough that he's going to direct you in his good, pleasing, and yes, ideally in his perfect will. But don't feel like you have made a fatal mistake. If you feel like, you know, I've done, I've done this thing and now it's a fatal mistake and I've missed the will of God. If you humble yourself and you just walk holy before the Lord, God is going to redirect, you know, if all of us had the, the perspective of looking in the rearview mirror and, and seeing our lives in terms of the will of God, we start out point A, point B is the perfect will of God. Nobody is living on a straight line. Nobody, except Jesus. So when you, when you start out life at point A and you want point B to be the ultimate destination of heaven and you want the perfect will of God all along the way, nobody is walking the straight line. Your life looks a little zigzagged. Okay, And if all of us were to look in the rearview mirror, we could see it's a little bit zigzag. But here's the beauty about the sovereignty of God and the love of our Savior. He's always constantly just redirecting, redirecting, redirecting. So that when we start out, the line is not necessarily straight because we don't always get it right. We're always, we're zigzagging. But God in his infinite sovereignty is still patting us along, keeping us within the target of his good pleasing and his perfect will. So, you know, this fatalistic view that some people have about, you know, well, I don't know, and, and you know, this guy I'm married next to me, I'm not even sure that was a perfect, guess, guess what? It is his perfect will now. And so just, you know, accept it, love him. So in this section here, he, he calls us back here, First Peter chapter four, he calls us to choose, choose the will of God over the lusts of men. He says in verse 3, we've spent enough time in our past lifetime, you know, doing what worldly people do. He says, don't, don't go back there. And then he lists some things here. And, you know, this is kind of funny because here we are, 
you know, almost 2,000 years later, and the list hasn't changed. So what, what does it say about human nature, right? He says, you know, we used to walk in these ways, lewdness, lewdness is, has a kind of a sexual connotation, lusts, drunkenness, uh, revelries, uh, the NIV translates that word, orgies, uh, drinking parties, you know, clubbing and, and uh, you know, all that bar hopping stuff, and abominable idolatries, you know, worshiping things and loving things other than God. You know, it, it really, this, the list hasn't changed. But now here's, here's his challenge. He says in verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange. Who's they? Your old friends. Your old buddies before you got saved. You, the people you used to hang out with before you came to know Christ, they think it's strange that you, that you don't run with them anymore. You don't party with them anymore. You, you don't hang out with them. The same flood of dissipation. And so guess what they do? They speak evil of you. This is what he says. I mean, this is, this is today's truth. You stop running with the people you used to run with. Guess what? They're going to think you're strange. You're weird. What cult have you joined? And they're going to speak evil of you. That's just the way it works. So here's what I try to tell people. Just to kind of give them a dose of reality. When you get saved, first of all, you're going to find out who your real friends are. And a lot of the people you thought were your friends aren't really your friends because unless you get wasted with them, they don't want to be your friend. But here's, the, here's something else I think is important for Christians to understand. When you make a decision that you are going to follow Christ and you're going to leave the life you used to live, and thereby people are going to speak strange of you, they're going to gossip about you, they're going to speak evil of you, all this kind of stuff, Okay. You better be prepared for a season of loneliness. You just better be prepared for that. And you better embrace it. Because there's going to be this sense of like, you know, I, I don't have friends now because, you know, all the people I used to hang out with, you know, they're doing stuff now that, that I guess I'm not supposed to do. And, so, and, then, and then you sit around and you, and, and you feel sorry for yourself and you feel lonely. And here's what begins to happen. You hate the loneliness. You despise the loneliness. So you start running with the same crowd you used to run with. And I just want to encourage everybody, take it from the example of Jesus, the most lonely person who ever lived. Because in Matthew 26, 56, it talks about how all of his disciples, they deserted him, they fled, they forsook him. And then he goes to the cross, so all of his best friends, all of his best friends deserted him. Then he goes to the cross, he's hanging on a cross. And you remember in that moment when he took on the sins of the world, your sins and my sins, and he felt the separation between himself and the Father, the mystery of the Trinity, though he's fully God, fully man, yet he speaks about how, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes from the Psalms because he feels in this moment complete and utter isolation, complete separation. So, in the moments when you feel sorry for yourself, like, you know, I've just left this world and now I don't have any friends, and you'll get friends eventually. You'll hopefully develop good Christian friends, and, but it's going to take some time. Don't allow the loneliness to pull you back into the old life. Embrace it for a season because Jesus knows exactly what you're feeling. He experienced the greatest degree of loneliness than anybody who ever lived, and yet he was faithful and true to the Father, and so can we be. Don't think it's strange when people say all kinds of things about you, when they reject you, and when they start speaking evil of you. You don't need to run with them anymore. 
Don't spend your lives running and doing the same things you used to do. Leave the ways of the world. Seek the will of God and live for his glory. Because he adds here in verse 5, they're going to have to give an account to God, to him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. So, you know, everybody's going to have to give an account. So God's going to deal with them. You just focus on living your life for the will of God instead of the ways of the world. And then he adds here in verse 6, he says, For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. What does that mean? That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Okay, so this verse here, chapter 4, verse 6, relates to what we read last week back up in chapter 3. I want to read just chapter 3 again, verse uh, 18 through 20. This is what it says. You want to glance back with me. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. All right, so last week, if you were here last week, you, you, uh, you know what we were talking about, so let me just kind of connect those verses with where we are here in chapter 4, verse 6, and let me use this slide to kind of uh, visualize what's going on here. Um, this is just kind of a, a very raw graphic of what exists in regards to where every single person went when they died before Christ was crucified. When you look at the Bible and you piece together passages like Luke chapter 16, at the end of Luke chapter 16, there's a story told about a rich man who was unnamed and a man who was righteous by the name of Lazarus, and those two guys die. And at the end of Luke chapter 16, when Jesus teaches this parable, he says that Lazarus, the one who is righteous, goes to Abraham's side, otherwise known as paradise, and the rich guy who's unnamed, uh, he's unrighteous, he goes to the torment side of Hades, and there's a fixed chasm, or some translations say a fixed gulf between the two. The entire location of where Everybody went who died. If you, if you were righteous by way of the temporary sacrifice of animals, you went to the paradise side. If you were unrighteous because you rejected God and you rejected the sacrifice of animals as a means by which to be made temporarily righteous, you went to the torment side and, and neither could cross over. The entire place was called in the Greek Hades or in the Hebrew it's called Sheol. Sometimes in your Bible, Sheol is translated as the grave. But it also means the place where all departed souls went. That's Hades, that's Sheol, same thing. It just depends which side you went on uh, as, as, it, as it related to whether or not you were temporarily righteous through the provision God had provided, which is the sacrifice of animals, or whether you were unrighteous because you rejected the sacrifice of animals. This is where everybody went prior to Jesus Christ dying on the cross. When Jesus dies... For three days, his body is in the tomb. His spirit, this is what it's meant in chapter 3 here, verse 19, when it talks about how Christ went and preached to to the prisoners, to those who were held captive. Jesus, his spirit, by his spirit, goes into the paradise side of Hades, not the torment side. 
He goes to the paradise side. And it is there that he announces that he is the fulfillment of their long-awaited anticipation for the Messiah. First Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow! Imagine that, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This inheritance isn't subject to taxes or diminished by inflation. God is keeping this inheritance for everyone who lives by faith in His Son. There is so much great news wrapped up in just these few verses. Imagine what the rest of the book will contain. Pastor Gary Hamrick is working through the rich, encouraging book of 1 Peter in this series on Cornerstone Connection. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, we'd love to see you on a Sunday morning or Wednesday evening. For more information, including location and service times, head over to cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. Well, we're out of time for today, but we'd love to see you here next time for more from Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes Mercy is waiting for you With every sunrise Hope is an open ocean Jump in and you'll find The cornerstones Your connection run towards your new Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.